Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. The other day, I was writing my Father's Day column, and it was about the nuns, or not nuns, let's put it this way, they're pretenders, they're anti-Christian activists who are part of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I was writing about Betty and my life with her and the fact that she didn't want a bulldog who would lie on the couch and fart and snore. She wanted the Doberman if we got one. And I, then I turned on, as I had to take a break, I turned on Jason Whitlock, Fearless, his podcast, Fearless. And I was stunned at the power of his words. And the subject was reclaim the rainbow because the rainbow was not just a a flag that people imposed upon others to force force them to applaud their sexuality. The rainbow was a symbol from God after the flood. To talk about all this and the destruction of journalism, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Whitlock. And again, as usual, another man who's here, all as always, Jeff Carlin, executive producer, WGN Radio, future physics teacher, man of pies, unfortunately, man of cats as well. But at least he's got one good thing going for him. He's husband to Christine. We love you, Christine. And me, John Cast, husband, father, Greek Orthodox Christian, editor-in-chief of your favorite source for common sense, John Cass News. But where are you as Chavez Ravine echoes from what happened last weekend on Father's Day weekend and what happened to the so-called sisters and the fearful attitude of white liberals who see a black man like Jason Whitlock, a strong Christian black man, and they don't know how to deal with him. You know, the secret of media is that white media is always biddable when they confront black militancy because they're afraid of being called racist. But, you know, another thing, media is also terrified of black conservatives and black Christians who stand for God. And in the rap world, that's almost unheard of. So where are you when all this is going on in our culture? You're on the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+. Plus. So this is a guy who lives high on the hog and he has this Tammany Hall-style attitude to power. And um, it is, it's the Chicago Way, absolutely. Look, the, the, the Chicago Way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago Way. The Chicago Way. That's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand with pen and paper in his hand, defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river, Castle. 
here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Our guest, Jason Lee Whitlock, is an American sports columnist, podcaster, and he hosts a program for the conservative media company Blaze Media. It's called Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And the other day, as I was writing my my Sunday Father's Day column, I took a break and put on, you know, Jason to listen to Fearless, just to take a break from writing. And I was riveted. I was riveted. I was bolted to the floor. I couldn't move because he was talking about a song that has since taken off. The song is called Reclaim the Rainbow. And it's about what happened at Chavez Ravine the other day at the Dodgers, where the Dodgers honored an anti-Christian hate group, a viciously hateful group called Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I heard that, and I thought, my God, if there's anything braver, I don't know what is, what's more threatening to the hard left than a black man, Christian, who is strong in God and strong in his faith, because that terrifies all of them. But here he is, Jason Whitlock. Welcome to the Chicago Way, sir. John, thank you for having me. Uh, It's an honor and a privilege. Uh, Looking forward to the conversation. Well, Jeff, you you have the song, right, Jeff Carlin? You have the song. Yeah, yeah, it's something. It's like you said, it's should go. It's going viral thanks to Jason's help. But here's a little snippet of it. Who would have drink the magic? Who could have thought or knew? We said a word for Walmart and be referring to do. Said I hope you put pops offended and you feel attacked. Cause I'm here to stand the village to take the rainbow back. And we're rising like a nation, calling out, seeing no hesitation. Should we can play nice, no obligation. I'ma call it what it is, abomination. And I'm snatching, I ain't asking. Got an animal instinct, Carol Baskin. My tongue is the gun, yeah, the assassin. Love is love, brr, nasty. Taste the rainbow. No thanks, I'd rather die. Unless it's God show. That sign up in the sky. Take a line from team. That is just amazing. How how is the how is the campaign going to uh raise attention to for this song and get more people to listen and to talk. I, I think it's going well. Uh, you know, we're currently number one on the iTunes hip hop charts. God, a song proclaiming God's grace and mercy and uh, vision and will for us is number one on the rap charts. That's amazing. And we're number three overall. We're trailing Luke Combs and Morgan Wallen to country music superstars that have the two songs, but we're number three overall. And we've done it pretty much with very little uh, media attention. Uh, you know, it, it's Bryson and that was the Shamika Michelle right. know, rap right. there, but Bryson has had several songs that are about politics that have done well on the iTunes charts, but, this is the first time uh, he's had a song that's explicitly about God and faith that ha- has done this well. And, and I don't think people don't know how to react. I mean, it's it's there's a female rapper, Doja Cat, who's very popular, big following. She released a single on the same day as us 
uh, called attention and a lot of fanfare, a lot of media push, uh, the, the record label pushing it, and we're outperforming her by a mile and outperforming a lot of people by a mile. And so uh, it's been going well. Well, you've been interesting that you've been for years a sports columnist and sports writer. And you've seen you've seen your colleagues, and I've seen them, my colleagues uh, in the sports world. And uh, when they're interviewing, say, a black athlete who just scored a touchdown, and the kid is like, "Praise Jesus!" and all that, and you can almost get a sense that they're blanching, but they don't know how to react. Right? They don't. They don't really know how to react. It's almost like, God, I don't like this the fact that he's talking about Jesus, but I'm not going to say anything. They never know how to follow up right? and have that conversation. Look, faith uh, has been a big part of the foundation of sports. Uh, faith, again, I talked about it and been talking about it for a long time, but yes, you have. the YMCA is the Young Men's Christian Association. Many people don't know that, that that's what the YMCA stands right. for. Now they just call it the Y. But the YMCA in the 1800s basically is the reason we have organized sports. Uh, it was founded with the idea of promoting muscular Christianity, and they thought the way to do that was through organized sports. And then by the time, you know, that starts over in the UK and it spreads here to America. And then when we get into the early 1900s in this country, uh, the the Catholic Youth Organization, the CYO, yeah. uh, starts organizing sports and is basically the leader of using sports as a tool uh, to end segregation and discrimination and to promote racial harmony. That was the CYO's mission, and, and literally, if you really understand it and look back, it's it, it's why Jackie Robinson eventually was able to break the color barrier and integrate Major League Baseball. And so faith, Christian faith, uh, Catholic faith, Christianity has been at the foundation of the popularity and the spread of sports. And this and the using sports as a tool to bring us together, and and now uh, we've reached you know twenty twenty three and where we're at now in this country, and no one wants to really talk about faith and its relationship with sports. We mostly run from it. The athletes and coaches will reference it. There's rarely ever a follow up question. You know, a, a guy will make some comment about how Jesus and God, you know, has allowed him to do all these great things on the field. Right. And no one ever says, hey, unpack that. What do you mean? How, how did how did God <laughs> play a role? And so it, it's it's that never that follow up never happens. They just people say it and then they just move on. Is it because they want to be is it because of an adherence to a belief in secular, the secular or is it fear? I I tend to think really it's fear that they don't know how to react to it. Yeah, I don't think they know how to react to it. As it relates to, you know, mainstream corporate television, they just don't want that conversation happening. They 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 just 
you know, and and th- there's again, you look at take a ESPN, and and again, you take the obvious connections between Christianity and sports, uh, and I would even say Fox Sports. I just don't want to single out right. ESPN, right. but uh, th- there's virtually no discussion of faith's role in sports. Many of the broadcasters, I know them, they're friends of mine personally. They all have a faith and and express it privately, but they're reluctant to talk about it on air because they know there's a penalty for that. Mm-hmm. Television, corporate TV is a secular uh, endeavor, and everybody knows that you run the risk when you start talking about God, you, you, you could end up in the unemployment line. And and so when I was at Fox Sports during the show Speak for Yourself, you know, we had incorporated talking about God and faith into the show when appropriate, because, you know, it's what I wanted to do uh, and, and it's what I thought was proper. And, you know, the athletes from Joel Klatt to Ray Lewis to everybody enjoyed coming on and just having that freedom. But, uh, you know, eventually I left Fox Sports. And, uh, you know, that's kind of all gone away. And so occasionally we saw Dan Orlovsky on ESPN in the DeMar Hamlin situation, pray on air, and that was a big deal. But uh, that was a one-time passing, fleeting moment. Uh, For the most part, the sports world and sports TV wants to stay away from that. I mean, as a producer, I I kind of – I understand the viewpoint of why it's avoided, you know, that secularism, because it's the idea that like John kind of teamed it up, but they're afraid of the other groups that say, well, why aren't you covering us? Or why aren't you, you know, that kind of spiral or, or domino effect? Jason, do you think there's anything to a lot of these, you know, these games after sports events, people will take a knee together in groups. I know in high school, we always did it yeah. afterwards. I know a lot of the football teams do it um, afterwards. Do you feel like, like, I feel like I feel like that they're they that's the layup, right? They can at least cover that and talk about, you know, look at all these players together, you know, taking a moment to to reflect on on what got them here and their religion and their beliefs and whatever it is. Do, uh, do you think they could start there at least? I mean, I feel like why not cover that? Well, because once you start talking about faith and God, you then have to start talking about sin and repentance. And so they just don't want to open Pandora's box, particularly when all these sports leagues are promoting pride. And just let's take the sexuality stuff out of it, just pride. Pride is a sin. And so if, if you open up a conversation about God, eventually you're going to get there and say, you know what, pride's actually not a good thing. Don't any form of pride. <laughs> And then the next step after that was like, yeah, and this sexuality pride, you know, the Bible actually speaks against it. <laughs> and they just don't want to go down that road. No, they're, because- they're freaking out. Well, it also doesn't help that every ad during a sporting event is, is, you know, keying in on carnal desires and trying to sell us all that stuff, too. So I guess it wouldn't really work for their for their brand of marketing either. No, it 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 just opens up a big problem and it, it it would expose just like hey how it would put a spotlight on how immoral how immoral 
much of what they're doing is. Again, you th- Super Bowl is the biggest platform we have to offer in popular culture. And uh, we platform the Super Bowl halftime. Every demonic rapper or the biggest demonic rapper stars of all time and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Eminem and 50 Cent, we we gave them the stage uh, to, you know, do all spew all their uh, satanic songs uh, minus the curse words or most of the curse words. Uh, that That's who we're platforming and, and providing a spotlight to is the other side. And that's again, why there's just no talk of God. But that's where the, uh, where this reclaim the rainbow song is so devastating or it's so precise, like a surgical strike because it involves a people who are generally conservative socially and spiritually and uh they don't like it i don't i i don't think black people like it and th- this is being fed to them this uh, this uh nefarious i would say um sexuality and they don't go for this i think the entire culture uh black white brown whatever is has a thirst for music that pr- uh, promotes more traditional, more biblical, more moral values. I, I think that's what this song is proving, is that there actually is demand in the market for good music that doesn't, ha- doesn't have to be turned off when your grandmother comes in the room or your mother comes in the room, uh, doesn't have to be turned down when you play it in your car because you don't want all that profanity spilling out of your car. There's a thirst for that. The market wants it. We're being denied it. it it's intentional. There, there's money to be made. And this is where, you know, they're, they're, they've rigged up the system in a way to uh, prevent normal capitalism from making corrections in the market because the market, again, is demanding this stuff and uh, we're not giving it to them and the major labels and uh, just the music industry in general. And so I just think this song is proof that, you know, people want this and it's, it's like, uh, starving man that just wants some water in the desert, and and anybody, hey, go sell some bottled water in the desert. You'll make a killing. You'll make a fortune. But they rigged up a system that no, nah, no, nah, don't 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 take that easy money. Uh, you know, let let's keep serving the public poison uh, because that we want to kill American culture. We want to promote a satanic, uh, hedonistic, materialistic worldview among the American population and across the world. It's it's really sad. I mean, how much do you, how big do you think that market can grow to? I mean, I, 
<laughs> you always look the, the old adage that the internet, 30% of the internet traffic is unfortunately porn, right? So there's a huge demand for stuff that's just amoral and just gross. Do, where do we start? Because I mean, starting at the Super Bowl is like starting at the tip of the mountain and working your way backwards, right? I mean, I, this is like you said, this is a culture, cultural issue. I mean, sex sells, uh, drinking is huge, I mean, a huge business. You know, look at all these these TV shows about people who are splitting their lives between families. I mean, all this stuff. Where do we start that isn't the Super Bowl? Because I feel like that's a mountain of a task to try to get there. I mean, this song is obviously a start, but it's also coming at a time when, you know, there's a, a, an apex of, and a confluence of of angst and and outrage and you know revolution against what we've been fed with a, a lot of this stuff. Where do we start that's more close to home or, or, or easier to attain? I, I think we just start with each individual. It, it, it's, you know, mm-hmm. and the content that we individually push out into the universe. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I made the decision to leave Fox Sports because I wanted to have a fuller conversation about God and uh, the American culture, and I, I didn't want the restraints of corporate television telling me what I can and cannot say. So just, hey, I'm going to move to Nashville. I'm going to start my own thing. Uh, no different than the decision Tucker Carlson uh, recently made, uh, basically, you know, that he's going to stand his ground. He's going to talk about what he wants to talk about. And if Fox News wants to remove him for that, he's going to deal with those consequences. And now he's taken his show to Twitter. And and I, I would say take the comedian Joe Rogan. I'm sure when he started his podcast, he wasn't thinking, yeah, I'm going to build this podcast into the biggest platform right. in you know, media right now. But he's done that. And so... Uh, individuals, believers, people of strong faith and conviction need to start uh, putting their actions where their beliefs are and and start living out that truth. We got to cut off our corporate handcuffs uh, because, you know, clearly there's enough information out there to know what those handcuffs come with uh, at this point from the ESG and DEI mandates and all that other stuff that uh, we have to be willing to stand on our beliefs and our convictions and realize that God will provide that, you know, you don't have to rely on some big corporation to provide for yourself. That's the revolutionary thing that you just mentioned, because many of us have done it. You've done it. I've done it. When you leave the corporate life, the corporate media life, It's so liberating, so free, that you can finally breathe. And I I, I just wonder, we're both from the Midwest. You're from Bloomington or Indiana, right? And I'm from Indianapolis, Indianapolis, right? Home of St. Elmo's Steakhouse. And I'm from uh, Chicago, the south side. But when you started in journalism, I mean, it took them a few years to figure out who I was and what I was about. And that's when they started poking and prodding and trying to shut me up. But for you, when did it begin where they thought, oh, oh, we got to watch this Whitlock character. We got to ratchet him down a bit. How did it begin for you? Where did it begin? It is. That's a great question, John. And, you know, I'm 56, so I'm 
a little surprised to hear from your perspective that the same thing happened to you. Oh yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's, I, it started for me. Look, I got to Kansas City in 1994, right, and had uh, instant success as a columnist as at the Kansas City Star. It was my first full time column job in a major city in 1994, and and uh, you know I started with the mission. I started. This is like in college when I switched my major to journalism. I said, hey, I want to be the sports writing version of Mike Royko. Right. And uh, that was my goal in life. And I got to Kansas City at age 27, got my column, and I'm like, I'm going to be here in Kansas City for 40 years, and I'm going to be the sports writing version of Mike Royko, and had instant success. And then by 96 or 97, uh, the people at my newspaper uh, were uncomfortable with my following and how massive it was and how powerful it was. And, and people, people won't fully understand what I'm saying, but it's just factual. They, they fired our second sports columnist and were looking for a second columnist and, and hired Joe Posnancy. Very talented, feature writerish type columnist. I wrote opinion pieces. Joe was a sports columnist that wrote feature stories for the most part. Uh-huh. Didn't really lean into opinion. I was actually someone. I was actually the person they had never heard of Joe Posnanski. I recommended them like, "Hey, you guys should look at Joe Posnanski. I was familiar with him." He had spent time at the Charlotte Observer right before me, said his style is completely different than mine. It'll be a nice combination. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, they immediately hire Joe and immediately start doing everything in their power to promote Joe as the Kansas City Stars star columns. Right. And, and at that time, I didn't understand what they were doing or why they were doing it. I didn't understand. I just figured like, oh, the, the sports editor just likes Joe Posnanski better. And But it know, hurt, right? It hurt, didn't it? Oh, it bothered me. Yeah. I mean, because it was so clear cut. Right. I'm just I'm not trying to like in Kansas City, I dominated that market. And what I said about the sports world mattered tremendously. Joe, a talented a uh, feature writer that, you know, wrote a lot of pieces that people would frame up and put in their basements and, you know, look how great I am, uh. you know, not, not really a hardcore journalist. He's, you know, a hagographer. And, and I'm not trying to diss the guy, but that's just the facts. And to watch my newspaper go, screw the journalists. We prefer this and we want the, public to prefer this and so they just bent over back but at that time i didn't understand what i represented and why i was threatening and and so but as i moved further along in my career and i had a lot of success uh you know started working with espn doing my own radio show while working at the city star and and by about it was in really in 2007 when the don imus 
uh, nappy-headed hose thing happened with Rutgers, that's when I figured out, like, whoa, I'm a threat to the whole thing. Yeah. I wrote a piece saying, like, hey, what Don Imus said is inappropriate, but it's really not that big of a deal. Have you listened to rap music and what <laughs> yeah. we say about ourselves and the music we're listening to? And that column went international. I mean, it was a everybody, every news station, Oprah flew me to Chicago, had me on the show, on her show to talk about it. And I, I was sitting on Oprah's stage talking about this Don Imus thing. And Russell Simmons, who was big player in uh, rap music, the CEO of Def Jam Records, and Ben Chavis, who at one point was the president of the NAACP, they were sitting in the audience in the second row. I'm being critical of rap music, and Russell Simmons and Ben Chavis are threatening me from the second row of the Oprah audience. We're Whoa. going... I'm yeah. Jeez. <laughs> We're going to get you inward. Is they're mouthing that to me while I'm on the stage uh getting interviewed by Oprah. And and that's when I was like, whoa, these guys and I won that year because of the piece I wrote about Imus, the stuff I wrote about the Genesis Six that blew up that whole narrative. I don't know if you remember that narrative. Well, actually this involved the Chicago Tribune, to be honest with you, John. Uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, news writer that you guys had at the Chicago Tribune, but the Genesis 6 case was the uh, kids down in Louisiana that beat up, nearly beat to death a white student, and they concocted this story that, hey, we beat up this kid because it, they beat him up in March or April, but we did it because in October – Someone hung a noose on a tree at our school. And that's what I don't know if you I go down to General Louisiana, interview everybody, write a piece that exposes that some white social justice minister from Texas concocted that narrative, fed it to the reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I can't remember the guy's name. I could look it up and, (laughs) and tell you, but. And, and it blew up this whole narrative. That story. Howard Witt. Howard Witt. There you go. I'm exactly. looking it up. Yeah, the Howard Witt story. Yeah, big. Yes. he was a big hero to the left at the time, but that, yeah. that's how he was. Yeah. Blew that whole narrative up. That The Genesis thing was like the, a precursor for uh, George Floyd and all these social justice stories and uh, criminal justice stories or whatever. Right. And that's when, like, I became enemy number one in sports media and just in the media. Like, this dude is dangerous. Uh, he's a black journalist that takes journalism seriously, actually does reporting, and will blow up our narratives and won't promote the company line. And that's when I started facing a significant headwind. And by the time 2013 rolls around and ESPN has hired me under the pretense of that I'm going to found and launch the website, The Undefeated, a a black website for black journalists that blah, blah, blah. That that was all ESPN hired me so that they could get my ideas for how to execute The Undefeated and then 
move on from me. And it was a setup. Throw a barrel and, over you. Right, exactly. Yes. It, it was a total. And they, so they spent a year getting my ideas. I wrote a whole book on how to execute the undefeated and blah, blah. But I figured it out shortly into it. Like, oh, this is all. They won't let me hire anybody. Right. They're, only, they're only letting me uh, tell them my ideas and how to execute it. I kept doing it because I was like, hey, this can't be executed without me. You don't have another alternative. You, you know, you can have some people try, but it won't be successful because, uh, you know, they don't have my journalistic chops. They're not going to stand in and take the kind of heat it would necessary to make this thing relevant. But anyway, by 2013, that's when I realized, like, oh, my God. I am the enemy. They're out to destroy me. And it it actually helped my faith journey. And it helped me realize like, oh, without God, I'm not going to survive. And so I've grown up in the church as a kid. Uh, I had, you know, always considered myself a Christian, but I wasn't leading a Christian life or taking my faith very seriously. And by the time 2013, 2014, 15 rolled around, I started taking my faith a lot more seriously because God was the only thing that was going to keep me safe in an environment where I was a clear target. I, I mean, that's that's the thing. The faith part of it is so powerful within you, right? And all of us, a lot of us, and we don't tap into it as much as because of, as John, we were talking about, you know, that fear of, what are they going to say that they being, you know, the people who are out against it, the people sitting in front of you, mouthing terrible things at you. Um, do you, do you feel that people, you know, the pushback, how, how do we respond really? There's somebody who is as well-spoken as you and as someone who's at the forefront, of a lot of this, you know, when you get into a conversation and, and you start talking about your faith and someone may roll their eyes or whatever it is, or disengage, how do you counter that? What do you do? I mean, how do you make that part of, of your everyday life and, and bring it back into a point where it is center point and people see that from you? For me, again, I'm built differently. And I would imagine John is built the same way when, when you're a columnist, there's, for the moment, and you write opinion pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something about your personality where you're just like, "Yeah, I really could care less what you think. This <laughs> is what I think." And if 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 a few angry emails or people being you being uncomfortable when people are uncomfortable around you, right. you're not meant to be a columnist. I, I, I've said that for thirty years. Is that like I'm completely comfortable when people are uncomfortable around me, and that's the only way to be a great columnist. I did. I didn't show up in locker rooms or at games wanting to be met by applause and have everybody on the team love me, have the executives love me. There are many alleged journalists that spend their entire life hoping that every locker room or press conference. Yeah that they go to that, you know, people are throwing rose petals at their feet and that the mayor or the general manager is going to especially the general manager, especially the general manager gives the, gives the access, you know, that's why I used to get pissed off about 
uh, sports journalist. Anyway, for me, it was when uh, my own newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, accused me of anti-Semitism because I dared criticize George Soros, who was picking, handpicking a series of do-nothing, no-prosecution states' attorneys around the country, from Los Angeles to New York and Chicago, and uh, the union here, the, the union here condemned me as an anti-Semite. I wouldn't join the union, and they condemned me as an anti-Semite. And there were friends of mine from, I don't know if you know him, Dan Proft, uh, the local local conservative at WIND, to Tom Bevan, Charles, um, Tom Bevan, and others throughout the country who've joined to support me. But that helped me, that helped me really examine my relationship with God because I was alone. All I had was my wife and my family and my readers. And uh, we started a new thing, this thing, John Cass News, just like you started your thing. And uh, I've never felt better in my life to be away from it. What year did that happen with you and Soros? After the canonization of uh, Floyd. It was August of 2020. Gotcha. So three years ago. Chicago Tribune uh, demotes columnist who blamed George Soros for violent protests. (laughs) (laughs) Who else is there to blame? Tell tell me this. And... uh, Mike Royko would not exist in this current environment. No, he would he not. He almost he almost was snuffed out years ago when I was a I was the news writer here. I was a political writer in Chicago, and he dared criticize the, the Mexican government for being a bunch of corrupt narco state uh, politicos. And they they were they had a, a proverbial you know what fit. <laughs> they promote they they came out to the Tribune they they demanded his head. The mayor demanded his head. All the politically correct people they did their dry runs at the Chicago Tribune, and they basically humiliated the guy. And uh, I remember the mayor of Chicago. Saying you should, you shouldn't. Uh, he shouldn't have uh, infuriated people. And I said, "What? Well, wait a minute. When you were down to your last vote, and you were freaking out that you were going to be driven out of politics, and Mike Royko stood up for you and protected you, put his arm around you, and said, Rich Daly is okay. He's not his dad. He's his himself. Leave him alone, and saved your career.'" Uh, you weren't really all that upset, were you? And neither were all the Mexican and Latino politicians who are standing with you here today to condemn him. And uh, he just mumbled off some nonsense like he usually did and just turned away and walked away, just like Joe Biden does. You know, when you ask him a question, he turns away, (laughs) showing contempt. Yeah. John, I gotta say, it's it's. This is why I was so looking forward to this interview because, you know, you 
got to live out my fantasy. I, I as a kid, or I, it was my halfway through my freshman year of college, you know, I switched my major to journalism. And again, I wanted to be the Mike Royko of sports, and I wanted to work at the Chicago Tribune in the sports department as a columnist. And, and you know, I followed your career and you uh, succeeding or uh, replacing Mike Royko. And then when David Hall, Dave, my yeah. ball teammate, actually gets to be the sports columnist at the Chicago Tribune, I have to, I don't know if I've ever I probably have told David this like how jealous I was <laughs> just uh I, I just it was for many years it was my fantasy to work at the Chicago Tribune cover sports and and just be in the same go to the Billy Goat Tavern uh you would have been just, a perfect fit you would have been a perfect <laughs> fit and you know what when when David when the White Sox were making their historic run uh, David, you know, they had me cover the White Sox then, I'd, you know, go down and cover. And I, I uh, basically, you know, fish out of water, but I went and tried it. And it was fun as a fan. I just didn't want to be too fanboy. And uh, David uh, David helped me out, and a bunch of guys in the sports department helped me out. And you would have been, you would have been a perfect fit there. Never Never, I, I would, you know, David went to Ball State, but he also went to Northwestern's journalism school to get a, a master's degree. Ugh. And I, I, I just, I think the Chicago Tribune, my read is just like after Royco, it just, it, it it's more the, the, cause like Royco, my dad owned a little neighborhood bar uh in the hood in Indianapolis and I grew up on a bar stool and my all of my values are factory worker, working class, Midwestern common, common sense. Yeah. Yes. And I just felt like the Chicago Tribune in, you know, post Royco was just and even during Royco, he was kind of he was more of a Sun Times columnist than a Chicago Tribune columnist, I, I thought. Uh it has I, been said. I thought, I did not fit a uh, Ball State guy that graduated with a 2.3. That <laughs> uh, I just didn't fit the culture of the Chicago Tribune. There were a lot of, you know, like you, we mentioned earlier in our discussion, the guy who was fronting off the Jenna Six. Uh, there were a lot of Howard Witts in the Tribune, and they still there. There still are a bunch of them still hanging around sniping at me and uh, you know how dare you bring it up this right uh this uh soros thing john don't touch soros leave it alone you know like they think i'm gonna get on my knees and thank them for the privilege no i i don't think so uh but they're still out there and you would have not enjoyed everything about the tribune but you would have enjoyed the readers You'd have enjoyed the readers and the and the grind of getting the stories out. That's what I did, and uh, the readers are not have now since been betrayed by the Chicago Tribune to the point where they're given a given it away for nothing. I mean, they have a few. There's a few bloggers who you know try to capitalize on their fame, but they're not doing as much as I thought they would. 
Does the paper still have relevance and influence in Chicago? I'll, I'll let someone else answer, Jeff. <laughs> uh, it's waning, if at best. Waning, I mean, right? Yeah, I don't know anybody who gets the paper, and they're selling it for nothing, so it can't be in high demand. So I don't know. It, what is it? One one year for like six bucks for a year? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, you can't so make keep a business alive that way. Mm. No, it's it's certainly. And it's lost that, you know, a lot of, after John and, and others, I mean, it certainly has not, no one, no one looks at the same way they did 20 years ago. That's for sure. When I was a kid, when they get out of here, it was great, but. The Bolsheviks won. They, <laughs> they took over the Chicago Tribune and that was my favorite paper. My, the paper I grew up with, it was, imagine if the Indianapolis star had been taken over by the Bolsheviks. What would what would be going on in Indiana, in Indianapolis, at at the bar, at your dad's bar, or at the bar at my favorite St. Elmo's? You know what would happen? It's I, I the whole industry is just very frustrating for me because I felt like uh, I, I could see it ninety seven, ninety eight because yeah. again, particularly when when I'm looking at like, well, why is my newspaper? I have all I have this massive following in in Kansas City. Why is the newspaper trying to diminish me and and promote the other guy? And I go, this doesn't make good business sense. And that's when I started figuring out that like the awards culture yeah. that was and I started arguing with our editors like Hey man, these awards aren't going to pay the bills. All mm. these plaques that you guys are getting, these APSE awards, right. all these fancy, I go, they're not going to pay people's bills. I, I, I don't get it. Why aren't, and, and I could see the whole digital thing coming. And, and they wrote stories to win, they wrote stories to build projects to win awards. That was all it yeah. was. It wasn't about, the customer, the consumer, you know, having a loyalty to the newspaper. It was about some editor trying to front himself or herself off at the White House Correspondents' Dinner or the Gridiron Dinner, and it, it was it was sickening. It made me sick. And it was so obvious, like, yeah. hey, this is a bad business practice. I mean, the big one of the biggest mistakes I made just being young and dumb and irresponsible was, you know, I worked at Knight Ritter for all those years. The the star was owned by Knight Ritter eventually. And I worked there for 16 years. And so I can't remember how much Knight Ritter stock I had through my 401k. (laughs) I just remember sitting there thinking the entire time, Hey, this is bad business. This is bad business. But I would never look at my 401k right, right. And, and sell off my Knight Ritter stock. And by the time that I did, it, I, and I may be exaggerating here, but my memory says like the stock was maybe 19 cents. <laughs> that I finally left. The guy who, uh, the guy who, uh, Tony Ritter's son is named Parr. And he ran the editorial board at, the Chicago Tribune, when they came after me. 
you know, when the when the left wing came after me to destroy and defame me. And they just sat there and let it happen. And I I, I never forgave them and never will. I don't expect people to bleed for me, but for God's sake, stand up and say, you know, he's he's not an anti-Semite, you fools. <laughs> but they didn't even do that. Yeah. How many years did you work there? I was uh, 30 years. I spent most of my life there. And all the all the summers where I didn't take all the vacations because I was worried that People would, uh, you know, I wanted people to keep their jobs. And if I could do anything to keep readers on board uh, with the, with the s- subscriptions, I'd do it. And then uh, now the, there's a couple people in town who are on, on the uh, on the left. And they're basically like, uh, call them, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, <laughs> you know, like uh, gossips. I let them go. They just. I live rent free in his in their heads, you know, Jeff. You know who I am. Yes, you do. And uh, just absolutely do. Let it go. But the demise of the, of the newspapers in general, for me and for you, is a tragedy because the tragedy is, I think, that we loved our readers and would do anything for them, and we respected them. I think. Didn't you respect your people, your readers? Oh, I loved them. I mean, right. it was whole point. And yeah. I mean, I can remember just I'd give speeches about uh, like, hey, look, there's a choice you have to make as a journalist. Who are you going to serve? And for me, I would always talk about I grew up an Indiana Pacer fan as a kid. And, and the Pacers, when I was a kid, were absolutely horrible, but they were my favorite team. And that's what got me reading the newspaper was to follow the Pacers. And I would talk about how I would read the newspaper articles, and I was like, hey, man, they're writing about us. Like, we're the Los Angeles Lakers or the Boston Celtics winning championships. (laughs) We're in last place every year. (laughs) And I was like, no one ever, I'm talking about as a kid, this is how my mom was like, why don't they ask these guys, like, the real question, why did we draft this guy? <laughs> why is this guy? I mean, we would ask nothing. And so I, as when I switched my major to journalism, the, 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 I, I'm telling you, I said this as a 19-year-old kid at Ball State. I was like, I'm going to serve the readers. And I, I used to say in speech, I was like, at that time, I think the Indianapolis Star had three or 400,000 subscribers that are readers every day. And I would say, so there's 300,000 people I can serve, or I can serve the 15 guys on the Pacers roster. I go, this is just simple math. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to write for the 300,000. And if 15 people are mad at me, I'll deal with it. Right. Right. Well, your (laughs) point, your point that if you get into this business and I guess the pundit business now, if you're worried about what people are going to say about you, you have no. You should not be here. Right? Uh, you you pointed that out early in the conversation. And I just point out when years ago when we had you know 
online commentary, people would write in and and rip you apart online. It was okay when they were ripping John Cass, but then when Darlene Glanton and Rex Hupke and other people of the left started getting writing columns and getting ripped, we had to tone that down. They had to, mm-hmm. they had to get rid of the comment section, you know. And I just thought, okay, whatever. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna help people how to run, do their job, do your own job. You know, Bill Belichick, do your own job. Well, if there's somebody who does their own job and does it great, Jason, it's you. And and it's been awesome to, to have you on. We really appreciate your time. And uh, before I let you go, we let you go. I loved it. What do you, what do you, was Jason do to relax? What are you reading? What are you watching? That isn't, you know, something that takes your mind off the insanity that is uh, modern life. Oh man. I, I, I wish I had a great answer, but mostly what I read and are interested in the Bible and which is a great answer, but I I tend not to take my eye off the ball. And so it's like, I watch a lot of documentaries. I, you know, fall into books that further explain some of the common lies in the media. Uh, I don't know. I'm just, I think we live in the most fascinating and corrupt time, perhaps in modern American history. And I'm just fascinated by it. And so I, I, I spend a lot of my time just trying to unpack the lies that were told. (laughs) And that's what I do for, to, I, I guess get away is just immerse myself in more and more information uh, about what's going on in this world because I, I'm I'm you know I'm 56. I just I never thought, never imagined it was a possibility we'd be living in a time where there are debates about whether men could get pregnant. And I just, <laughs> how did we get here? How, how did this happen? And how can you not tell job me? Trying to unpack that. That's for sure. How can you not tell me what a woman is? You're, yeah. you're, I, I never thought I'd live in a time where Supreme Court justices were afraid to say what a woman is or what is not. I mean, my could God. You, okay. Could you imagine the Royco column after Katanji Brown Jackson? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's. I imagine I, the editor, Howard Tyner, uh, ha- having to deal with it, with the, uh, with the Jacobin revolutionaries in the Chicago Tribune newsroom. And I know who they are. You know, I can just, I can point them out now, writing and gossiping and pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, cheap, cheap. And they're like all, all creating problems for Howard Tyner and Mike Royko. We live in fascinating times, Jason Whitlock, but that's why we're so lucky to have among us a man like you who is fearless. Thank you, sir, for being here. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. For Jason Whitlock, longtime sports columnist, news columnist, and now podcaster on Fearless. And for Jeff Carlin, my friend and colleague and executive producer at WGN Radio. And for me, John Cass. 
editor-in-chief of johncastnews.com. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Chicago Way Podcast on WGN+.